Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to today's Live Inspired podcast episode. Don't miss my Monday motivation essay. I'll reflect on my main takeaway from today's discussion and send it directly to your inbox so that you can begin your week just right. I want you to go right now and sign up at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash Monday hyphen motivation. One more time, it's johnolearyinspires.com forward slash Monday hyphen motivation. I'll include a link in the show notes. See you there. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. We must learn to live together as brothers and sisters or die together as fools. I'm going to say this quote with you one more time. It's from our friend Martin Luther King Jr. We must learn to live together as brothers and sisters or die together as fools. This quote plays in our marriages, in our singleness, in our families, in our communities, in our office environments, as we compete professionally, as we walk through our lives in our neighborhoods, in our regions, our states, our countries, and perhaps no more clearly is it evident than in the Middle East. And frequently when we think of regions or countries or war or refugees, we think of masses of individuals. We think of those people, we think of nations, we think of lots. And sometimes in thinking of the big numbers, we forget about the little ones. We forget about the mothers and the fathers and the sons and the daughters and the neighbors and how individuals do life together through incredible adversity. Today, we have the great fortune of bringing on a gentleman who will remind us of the power of one. He writes a beautiful story about his father about a little boy who goes on through a very difficult time to teach the rest of us how we can become the best versions of ourselves through incredible adversity. It's a beautiful story, it's emotional, it's heart-wrenching, and it's gonna be shared with us today by Dr. Bassam Hadi. I encourage you today, my friends, to open wide your hearts and your minds, grab your journals, you'll wanna take notes on this one as we bring on a truly remarkable story, full of some tragedy, but an awful lot of triumph, you, uh, you're you gonna be moved. And I'm excited to share more. So uh, buckle up, get ready for the ride. Dr. Bassam, Heidi, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. It's a pleasure to be here, John. It is my honor. Thank you for taking time out of your crazy schedule to join us in studio. I love it. So you, uh, you've got a wild life yourself, and you've also decided to write a book about your father and grandfather's journey. I want to begin by talking just a little bit about you. Where are you from originally? Yeah, I grew up in Belleville, Illinois, but I was born in Beirut, Lebanon. So I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a hometown boy. You are a hometown boy. How many years, though, did you spend in Lebanon? I was born in 1967, spent my first three years of life there. I obviously don't remember much of it, but... Uh, I uh, moved here in the 1970s and uh, been in Belleville my whole life as a kid until I went to college. You went to college. Did you always have a feeling you wanted to move toward medicine? 
No, I didn't. I actually was an engineer as an undergrad and uh, applied to medical school, law school, and graduate school, and I happened to get accepted to medical school first. So I went to medical school. And uh, with the goal of, ex- of studying anything in particular, or just, eh, I'm going to feel my way around and find a subject that I fall in love with? No, I actually did the second. I felt my way around, found out what I liked, and uh, had no aspirations to be a neurosurgeon. It just kind of worked out well for me that way. Well, you've become a neurosurgeon, and it's my understanding that while in school, it's really the first time you started to recognize that some of the stories from your childhood were maybe even a bigger deal than you thought. Stories of your father and his father and their legacy. You know, everybody has stories from their father that tells them that they walked through four miles of snow carrying 20 books. And so I had this recurring story of what my father had to go through to become a physician or to be able to live a normal life. And at first, I thought this story was just an embellishment of a bunch of facts, may or may not be completely true. And then I got older and I talked to my extended family and friends. And I was like, wait, hold a minute. That that all is true? He grew up in a refugee camp after being forced out of his house at eight years old. And his father was against him going to school and literally beat him for it. And he wasn't allowed to study in the house and studied in the street lamps in the street. And then to get to college, he had to be take this test. And he couldn't take the test because he didn't have the money. And then his grandmother gives him the money after she sells her jewelry. And he gets the top score in the country and becomes a physician. I was like, that's too much of a fairy tale. It can't possibly be true. Yet it was. That was the story. You just went through about eight of the bullets that I wanted to ask you about in a grand total of 24 (laughs) seconds. I don't know what we'll spend the rest of our time talking about, but maybe it's unpacking that story and how you learned not only the bullet point forms of it, you know, going to school and not having shoes and, and grandmother selling jewelry, this kind of stuff, but the painful truth of it. So my, my, my first question, my friend, is is why did you begin taking a deeper dive into your father's story? You know, this is a story that I really thought would be an inspirational story. And as a tribute to my dad and to any kid out there or anybody actually that's ever had just injustices or obstacles placed before them and told, hey, this is the way it's going to be. You have no choice. There's no hope. This is the way it is. This is a story to tell you it can't, it doesn't have to be that way. You can dream and you can inspire others to reach up higher. And I thought that story could do that for some child or another person out there. And I thought it was a great story. It was a good story uh, about a father and son. And it's something that I wanted to say, you know what, Dad, I really respect what you did. And I think this could have a great ripple effect with other people. And I want to tell this story and I want to write this book. When you share that with him, and I understand that he's an incredibly humble guy, what's his response? Nobody's going to care about my story. Why would anybody care about my story? You see, John, the difference is sometimes in the first-generation immigrants here, if they're successful in the United States, they all have incredible stories. If you talk to any first-generation immigrant that came from a war-torn area or an area— that is ravaged with poverty, they had great struggles to get to the United States. And so his story, as incredible as it is, is shared by a lot of doctors and a lot of successful people here in the United States that came from really incredibly poor circumstances to start. 
So, of course, he thinks, oh, yeah, this is, it's just what I had to go through. It's what other people had to go through. One of the reasons I was excited to share the story is that of my team who took care of a little boy named John O'Leary in hospital at age nine, three of my physicians were immigrants. And I don't know their stories, although now after reading your father's story, written by his son, I look forward to reaching out to those physicians to learn more about why they came and what they endured and what they faced and all that they overcame. Because your, your father's story is one of overcoming. Yeah, it is. It's one of overcoming the challenges. Uh, similar like when you're in the hospital bed and you're looking up and well, actually not looking up because you couldn't see for a long time. But people need to actually sit down and understand the obstacles in front of them sometimes are incredible opportunities. It's uh, those opportunities and overcoming those obstacles that really define people's characteristics and make for an incredibly wonderful journey that may actually bear more fruit had the obstacles never been, never been placed before in front of them. If you grow, if you, if you, if you like wine, uh, the best wine grows on the toughest mountainsides and they are the most expensive wines and the best wines because they have to survive in the toughest climates. I'm not saying I would put anybody through that, that process voluntarily, but the ones that get through it, they're a special vintage. Well, we all go through our own uh, seasons of drought and fire and everything else. And yet I'm not sure if I've read a story about a kid who went through quite as much as your father on the journey forward. So let, let's talk about your dad. When did you as a little boy start to recognize that you had not only a bright, beautiful physician in your life, but uh, a heroic character? You know, it took a long time because he's so humble other than telling me the stories I need to hear to motivate me in school and to do well, he didn't tell his friends. He didn't tell uh, anybody outside of his immediate family. The doctors he worked with at the hospital had no idea. The other people we lived with in Belleville, the tennis players he played with, they re he really kept it to himself. Only when I heard the story from my mother and then as I asked him the story did I have the even deeper respect and understanding for what my father really suffered through. You know, as a little boy, eight years old, you can only imagine having your whole world turned upside down and you trying to make sense of it all and then being given a whole new reality and being told, well, this is it. This is all it's ever going to be. And that's a tough, tough life because he was only eight. That's tough to kind of overcome issues at that young age. It's, you're just trying to process information. So with Dr. Bassam, Hadi, we are going to be talking about his father and his grandfather and the relationships in their community. And as you hear this story, you're going to recognize tones that are very geopolitical. Uh, there's going to be a little bit of religious context to it, and we could take a big macro conversation here. But instead, we're just going to talk about one person. We're going to talk about this little boy going through what he went through, and you can draw your own conclusions. I welcome you to learn about a topic that I knew very little about. And as I passed your book around my office, it turns out most of us had very little clue about what had happened, why it happened, and the impact it had. So let's begin with UN Resolution 181. And in short, what is UN Resolution 181? It is the creation of Israel in 1948. So they needed to carve out a land to place the Jewish people in. And there's great controversy about actually how this actually developed. But in essence... They had difficulty finding a land that would be able to have both the Jewish and Palestinians peacefully live in it. 
Ironically, that's exactly what was happening before then. The reality of it was that they removed people to create the state of Israel. I'm not trying to be political here at all, but they had to create an area, a tranche of land that was wholly Jewish or predominantly thereof, and they physically removed through a very violent process a great deal of Palestinians who were civilians and just trying to live in a land that they had lived for decades, if not centuries. You begin your book with some pretty haunting words. Most uh, most books begin with, you know, buckle up and get ready for the ride. Here's where yours starts. Read this book to enjoy heartwarming triumphs and poignant dreams. Read this book to be repulsed by needless violence and wanton bloodshed. And read this book to heed a dark warning. What we sow, we shall also reap. Yeah, what I was trying to get by with that is there's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of pain in the Middle East. And there's been that way for a long, long time. And at some point in time, the two parties involved are going to have to sit down and understand that neither party is just going to push the other into the sea and disappear. They're going to have to live with each other. They've been doing something for 71 years and it hasn't worked. So I would suggest possibly taking a new look at the people across the street or across the aisle and see if you can't form some sort of positive relationship that you can actually dwell together because what has been going on for 71 years has led to nothing but pain and suffering for generations. You know, when I, when I hear that uh, 1,100 refugees died or 1,700 people were injured, it, it's numbers and it gets lost on you. I thought the beauty of your book is you brought those big macro numbers down to one and we learn through the eyes of a child what it's like to lose a home and what it's like to walk through the middle of the night and what it's like to be thirsty and what it's like to be hungry and scared. So uh, take us through some of your favorite stories as you wrote that book and recall some of your father's heroic steps. Some of my favorite stories are not really the word favorite, but the most memorable yeah. is just the start of the whole process. Here's a little kid who's watching the destruction of his town happen as the fighters buzz overhead and then a blitzkrieg type of attack happens. The next day, he's walking hand in hand to his, with his father as they tell him, everybody head to the mosque. And they go to the mosque, and he doesn't know why he's going there. Then he gets sent home because he's only eight years old. His father gets sent home without him at a later time because he's blind in his right eye from a childhood injury. My father walks home. He sees dead bodies in the street. He sees a machine gun being shot. He is basically frozen with fear, but just remembers what his dad told him. Don't look to the right or the left. Just go straight home. He almost gets home. He hears some shooting bombs going off in the direction of the mosque. And then he gets whisked up, picked, and taken home by his father in the nick of time. The next day, they get marched out at gunpoint and have to march 20 miles, 25 miles, barefoot, because they forgot their shoes, only with whatever they could carry. And they had to just march in this desert. His mother was one week postpartum. She was still bleeding from the baby, a seven-day-old baby. She was worried would, would die because her milk would give out. 
And so one of the old ladies actually offered her her jug of water to have her survive. And at first the grandmother didn't take it because it doesn't take anybody else's water. It would be taking their life. And she said, no, I've lived a good life. My family is dead. You take it. Take it for your baby. And she took it. And then they continued on their march and trek. But my dad remembers the most vivid memory of that was other than walking the street with all the, the blood and the death is my grandfather wrestling the key off of the court door chain and saying, we'll come back. We'll be back. And they never went back. But that, that memory is vivid in his mind that they took the key from the home and they kept it. They kept it their entire time. My grandfather probably died with it on him. He never left, let that key go because it was symbolic of everything he lost. But he never, they never went back. That story is uh, one of my most memorable. As we went to Nablus, where they resided, the story that most haunted me, per se, or a little bit what inspired me and haunted me was his father became jaded very quickly after losing everything, which is understandable, and wanted his oldest son's help. And this son just wanted to go to school. The school had been closed for a couple of years. He missed a couple of years of classes. And now they opened up a tent refugee camp school, and he wanted to go. And he suffered many beatings because he was found wasting his time. He still worked after hours, but he tried to go to school. And he got beat one time for having the gas lantern on, wasting money and wasting time. And so he wasn't allowed to study in the house. And they didn't have any electricity or running water or anywhere else to go. So he went to the street lamps and he studied under the street lamp. To this day, John, people in Nablus still know him as the kid who studied under the street lamps. I mean, he was the kid who got number one on the test and made it out. But he studied under the same street lamp, barefoot, morning before the sun came up, night after it went down. That was his desk. That was his light. And that is something I thought of every time I studied for a test or thought I had it tough for school and I was sitting at my desk inside with a cup of coffee or whatever it may be, warm, well-fed, bed next to me, books. He studied with whatever he could his hands on, in the cold, without much food, if any food at all, under a street lamp. And I find that to be probably the most memorable thought in my head. In fact, I almost called the book The Boy Under the Lamp with a picture, kind of a silhouette and him underneath. But I thought the road to Nablus had more meaning. And and, and it could have been the road from Nablus because it's really about the journey, not only to it, in it, but also beyond it. Well, the road to Nablus had many means. The first road to Nablus was when they were evicted and they had had to go to Nablus on foot and then by truck for a part of it. The road to Nablus is also the second symbolic would be the road he walked to go study underneath that street lamp each time. That was the road to Nablus throughout the book. And then the road back to Nablus where he goes and visits every once in a while to see family because they have a house there. They have a condo. So those are the three roads I thought there's symbolic in the the title. And uh, that's why I named it uh, what it is. It's been said, you you can't always choose the path that you walk in life, but you can always choose the manner in which you walk it. Yeah. Your father and then his father decided to walk this journey to Nablus in very different ways. And I think in the best way, ultimately, that each could. Your father 
as a little boy, barefoot in a desert community, away from home, struggling with no resources, decides to imagine huge things through his life. What do you think it is that kept a little boy with nothing imagining that anything was possible? Well, first off, I, I want to make sure to understand that the my grandfather was not a bad guy. I mean, imagine being in his position. You're in yeah. your late 30s, you're diabetic, you're blind in one eye, and you have everything in your world taken away from you, and yet you have children to provide for. So he had responsibilities in his situation. I saw him as a victim also because although he was jaded, he, was, he, he had no choice. He had to support his family. He just wanted help. Uh, my father, he's a little kid, and... He's trying to look at the world and say, there's got to be something better than this for me. And that thought, I don't know how many times my dad told me that thought was in his head. And he had complete faith that for some reason he believed that that world was not his world and that he was going to be it. He believed it deep in his soul, 100%. How do you imagine a world better than the one that you currently exist if you've never seen a world other than the one you currently live in? Partially from, I guess, having a small wife in the, the town before it was lost. Partially from his readings. But just deep inside him, he knew that there was a university. He knew that there was a world out there. But John, it was mostly imagination. It was just a belief. And that makes it all the more incredible. Yeah. Because it's not something that he was seeing on a day-to-day basis from anybody else. He really believed that he was going to do something much better than what he had at the time. He didn't know what that was, but he knew it was better. He had read about America, by the way. He actually thought that'd be a great place to go. But again, a dream. What was America? What was that to him other than this land of, you know, gold gold roads and uh, plenty for food and plenty for eat and justice for all? It was more of an idea. Mm. You write extensively about the disagreements of not seeing exactly eye to eye between father and son. And it goes on for decades. It's not a short battle. This thing is continuous throughout really the course of both lives. What do you think it was about your grandfather that made it so difficult for him to accept his son's will or dream or desire or passion for life? You know, it wasn't, so, again, so much that as he was a realist. He was in a camp. Uh, there's school is a tent. Uh, the books are minimal. They didn't have anything for pencils that they could have. They had to basically what they were given. He didn't have a, a good library to go to. He didn't have resources to study. So for this little kid from eight years old to their his teenage years to say, I'm going to win the scholarship and be the number one student in the kingdom of Jordan against doctors and engineers, kids in this in the country with beds and food and books and Tutors. a desk. Yes. He thought it was, you're dreaming and you're wasting time and you need to help me and stop with this fantasy world that you're living in. And so he wasn't taking away his dream as much as he was trying to put food on the table and trying to put clothes on their back. Remember, my dad was the oldest of eight brothers and three sisters. This is not a small family. They, they, he had a lot to provide for in this 15 by 12 foot tent. And his oldest son is going to school. So that's a lost job. Instead of working at two, two jobs or one job, it could be two or three. Mm-hmm. And so that's the way he looked at it. But this also comes from the fact that he had no possibility to do anything better. 
He knew he was stuck in this world, that he was not going anywhere. He had kids. His opportunity was gone. What he didn't see is the opportunity those 11 kids presented and what they could do. He only saw what he could do. And so he didn't understand the ripple effect of putting positive thoughts into people around you or your own children, seeing them become more than you. That did not dawn on him for some reason. And that is kind of what this book is about of saying, hey, you may think you're stuck. A, you're not stuck. You can do anything you imagine. B, how you act and what you do affects everybody around you. And you could really lift people up or pull them down with you. So dad starts making soap. Dad starts tutoring others. Dad starts doing all kinds of any any little job to help support not only him, but also this test that he's got to take in time. Yeah, he initially was uh, selling soap. Didn't do too good a job at that, but just a little bit. Tried to sell some food and pudding. Again, didn't do well at that. Became a really good tutor. So as he excelled in his classes because he was singularly focused, he started tutoring the teacher's kids, which was (laughs) incredible. High praise. Uh, Yeah, that's a very, very good compliment right there. From there, other people started to hire him as tutor. And so he would earn money tutoring children after school. Your mother, your your grandmother, becomes really, for me, one of the great heroes in the story. Clearly, your dad is just such a bold little guy, a little visionary, so much courage and zest and resiliency. And I'm not sure he could have done what he ends up doing without the assistance of his beautiful mom. Just talk about your grandmother. So my mother, my grandmother, his mother was a very smart, clever, funny lady with an incredible sense of humor and a very, very strong personality. It doesn't come out quite as much in that book because we're in a patriarchal society. But she was incredibly tough and had a great smile. My dad, probably the only person I know that I've ever met that has never been given a gift of any substance by anybody except for one gift. My grandmother sees him crying under the street lamp because he can't take the test because he doesn't have money for it because his father took the money that he got from tutoring. And she tries to console him, puts her arm around him and says, son, I don't need that piece of paper to tell you how, tell me how smart you are. I know how smart you are. Look at how all the kids you've been tutoring. Look at how much money you've made tutoring. You made more than your dad working. <laughs> And, and my dad looks at her and says, you don't get it, Mom. I just wanted one time to have an opportunity, a shot like everybody else, just to graduate with everybody else, just to be treated like another, another kid at the high school. But I'm not going to have that. And she said, Do you, it really means that much to you? And he goes, yes. And he walked away. And so she went home, took out the only thing she had of any value, which is a big deal for a Middle East female because... Yes. Their wedding jewelry is supposed to be kind of an insurance policy. If anything happened to the husband, that is the only money they really have because they can't really go out and work in that type of society. So she took that and she sold it. And then she brought the money to my dad. And my dad wouldn't take it. He said, where did you get this money from? And she said, I sold my jewelry. And he wouldn't take it. And then she said, what's done is done. Go do something good with it. That is the one gift that I can point to in his entire life that he probably got that he did not actually pay for. From that, he took the test. He graduated high school. They sat around the radio three weeks later 
and waited for the top scores in the, in the kingdom of Jordan. And it's just, it's important that folks listening right now understand he's a little guy in a refugee camp under a tent and studying under a streetlight. This isn't exactly, uh, we're not the Ritz-Carlton with tutors coming by to give us a hand. So as he's listening to the radio, what, what does he ultimately hear? They start saying the top scores and the top names in the country, and they announce my father as the number one score on the exit exam in the kingdom of Jordan. And he was offered a scholarship to the American University of Beirut to study medicine. It was his dream come true. It was a dream that he had been planning for 10 years and the off chance that he would have that one sliver of an opportunity and that he'd have that one little piece of luck that would help him. And it was a miracle in of itself because if you had to write the script and say, all right, so this kid who sleeps on the ground on a mat on a dirt floor who is always starving, who really has no access to resources or help, has to find pencils, barely has shoes, studies under a street lamp to compete against other kids with probably very, very smart kids in the country with more resources, you would think there's no way. But there's one thing that you can't ever really measure, and it's the heart of somebody on the inside. Many, many times in life, it's not the best athlete that wins something. It's the one that has the most heart. And this is kind of like that. You know, he is, may or may not have even been the smartest person in the country, but he tried the hardest and he had a will of iron. And so he saw it through and he willed it to come. He just willed it to be reality. You filled a beautiful book with stories and unbelievable anecdotes about what he went through, what he weathered. Fast forward the tape a little bit, though. Uh, eventually, he makes his way to the United States. Was his father proud of him as he's progressing forward in life, getting into school, beyond school, medical school, into the States. Well, I'm particularly actually proud of that last chapter because I wanted to close the loop with the, with the father. And it's a true story on how it was closed also. So my dad lived in the United States, became a physician immig- after he immigrated here. It was naturalized in 1976, actually the 200th anniversary. Huh. And it was uh, very, very festive. He had to take a huge test for this, too. They st- he studied to, be- <laughs> to, become, to become a U.S. citizen. And he was so proud. My father, when he goes to a baseball game or uh, any sort of sporting event, you know, he put his hand on his heart. And I remember say- asking him, why do you do that? He goes, this is the best country in the world. This country is this country that gave me a chance. No other country would have given me this chance. You know, this is the, it may have its mistakes, have its flaws, but this is the best country in the world because here you have opportunity. Here they treat you as an equal. And I remember him telling me that when I was a little kid. So my grandfather was proud of him but never told him. Again, very patriarchal, tough society. You know, you kind of love your children, but you more or less, you're kind of tough with them. In their last visit... In 1980, before he passed, he went and sat down next to him, and he told him, he goes, son, I wanted to thank you for the money. And then his voice was kind of cracking, and my dad didn't know what to say. And he leaned over to him and he said, I hope you understand why, but he really couldn't get the words out either. And then he said, I'm proud of you. It was the only time he probably said it that I know of. And uh, my dad almost choked up. He had no response. He knew his dad loved him. He had already forgiven him for all the, what he had gone through because it was a tough society. He did not spare the ride with the children back then, not in that area of the country. 
And so my dad loved his father, my grandfather. It'd be a poor testament of a person if he didn't. He loved right. them as much as you could possibly love anybody else, and he did everything he can for them, flaws and all. You wrote about what became of the other brothers, the, the ripple effect of one refugee's life. And part of the reason this is such an attractive story for, for me right now is the refugees are in the news, whether they're the ones, those people in Europe or those people in the Middle East or those people in North Africa or those people coming from South America or Central America. For the course of humanity, the refugees have been on the move and there have been people, human beings, <laughs> longing for a better opportunity. And your father uh, and his and his father represent that. So it's a story that is uh, both timely and timeless. This country is a country of immigrants. And they have really contributed to who the United States is. My father is just a person like anybody else just trying to be make a better life, wants an opportunity, just to give it a chance. And so many refugees, they're sometimes, they're misunderstood. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's bad people in every, in every group. But we always need to take a, take a step back and try to understand the circumstances of what people are going through. And they're going through an awful lot. And we have it pretty darn good here. Those refugees, before they get stereotyped or labeled in a certain fashion, take a step and don't judge and try to understand the perspective. What, try to live the world through their eyes and see how it is. And if you can see their heart and their mind that way, you might understand what they're trying to do. Again, I'm not trying to make a political statement. I just think that everybody should be understood in their circumstances. And this country, and it's a phenomenally great country, was built on ideals of we can be better together. And I still believe that. Yeah, my father came in legally. My father took a naturalization test. Mm -hmm. And I do believe all those, there should be a rule of law. But I do believe that the refugees, you need to try to see through their perspective and through their eyes because I bet you 99.9% .9 are probably good people just trying to make a better life for themselves. What became of your uncles and aunts? It does reveal the byproduct of your grandfather's journey. Yeah. So this family of refugees who lived in poverty developed one engineer, uh, graduated from American, again, the University of Cairo as an engineer, a teacher, ended up being superintendent for a school, an accountant, one owns a taxi driver company, another has a car rental company, another is a chef. Mm. And my father paid for all their educations and uh, paid for all their weddings has helped them out whenever he could. And so the ripple effect is a direct. They graduated college with professional degrees, did very well. When you finished writing this book and reading through it and then ultimately sharing it, how did it change you? How does, how does really mining the life of your father and grandfather and your heritage, how does that impact the way you show up each day? John, it humbled you because you understand the privilege that I've had in the United States and the advantages I had being a doctor's son and all the accomplishments that I thought were really great and really a big deal and, God, how smart I was or this or that, you start to understand that maybe you didn't quite do as much as you thought and maybe a little humility will go a long way to actually give you a better perspective on the world. And so when I finished a book... I looked at my life and I said, well, I haven't done anything close to this. And I probably will never 
do anything close to this because I didn't grow up in the tough mountainside. I'm not going to be that vintage of wine. I had it easy. And so I'm thankful for having it easy, but also understand that because I had it easier, I can't claim the status that my dad can claim. I can't claim to be as good as uh, I probably thought I was when I was a cocky teenager or, you know, 20-some-odd-year-old guy, you know, because I should have done it. I should have achieved. It's more of a kind of expectation. If you're given a possibility in this country and you're given a mind, you're given some sort of, uh, you know, abilities. Those are really responsibilities you need to achieve. It is your it is your destiny to do so. It is your, your responsibility is a better word. But if you don't, you're throwing away God's gifts. Your father certainly did not throw away his gifts. And I'm curious, what is what is his son now doing with his? G- give me an idea of a few of the ripple effects now coming out of your life. I am a neurosurgeon. I work at Mercy South, and I'm very happy with that incredible facility. I was lucky enough to be named Department of Surgery chairman for Mercy South Clinic. I think that's an honor, and I'm humbled to do that. I have two gorgeous girls and a beautiful wife. I have four great kids from a previous marriage that are wonderful children. And uh, I have a a great immediate family and a great system of friends that that supports me. Probably don't deserve all the the love and support that they give, but it's there for me. And uh, those are my those are my most proudest accomplishments. I have a great family, and I've done well professionally, but I think I'm very proud of my family. You wrote your book fairly directly toward an individual, toward a dad and his father and, and that community, but clearly it has some geopolitical ties. Yeah. I mean, it's directly tied oh, yeah. to what, what happened through World War II, the results of that, the ripple effect of that, the Jewish people rightly looking for safety somewhere, finding it nowhere. And, uh, and because of that, now there's a negative ripple effect that is occurring within your own villages. As you look toward what's still happening in the Middle East, what, why do you have hope? You have to have hope, John, because I think without hope, you don't go anywhere. Without hope, my father doesn't uh, accomplish anything. You have to have hope and a belief, and you have to aspire to aim higher. The peace process or lack thereof in the Middle East is a lack of understanding and perspective on multiple sides. Uh, frequently, people do not see or want to see the other person's side. They don't see them as people. They see them as adversaries. They don't want to compromise. They want to win the argument. They don't find a way to live together and see the, see the, the good in each other. They find the bad and they want revenge. I think the peace process could be much better if everybody could see the eyes through the eyes of the others. Mm. Um, this book is not an anti-Israel book. In fact, no. Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, and it's a it's a wonderful country. And I will say that its educational system and its uh, treatment of of all the Arabs within the proper Israel is excellent. It's the occupied territories. It's the, for lack of a better word, this giant prison that's been made around the people that are still there. They have been forgotten, and their plight is poor. And they need to be uh, given just a chance and an opportunity and looked at as fellow humans as opposed to adversaries that are, need to be gotten rid of. Or vice versa, they need to look at the Israelis as their fellow man, their brothers. They can't look at them as people that they're going to have to remove from Israel and push into the sea. That's just not going to happen either. At some point, they're all going to have to sit down and understand we're going to have to live together. 
and how we treat each other is going to come back and ripple back to us. And that's that's the essence of it. So I still have hope. I think with the proper leadership or proper people in position, people that love each other, that are strong but love each other and can see through each other's eyes, I think that great things can still happen. So on our Live Inspired show, we have questions that tether all of our guests together. We call them the Live Inspired Seven. And the very first question is, what is the best book you've ever read? The best book I've ever read? Uh, that is a very good question. And I'm going to say that it, it may be a little bit uh, controversial. It's Atlas Shrugged mm. by Ayn Rand. I, uh, I think it is a very controversial book, but it's an incredibly perceptive book. So I love that book, Atlas Shrugged. What is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a child that you wish you exhibited as brightly and as brilliantly today? Innocence. Mm. I was uh, much more of an innocent child. I saw the good in everybody. I never assumed bad. Uh, you could probably rob me blind or lie to me. And I just did not know bad. I just did not know evil. And um, I was very innocent. And as I've grown older, I'm less innocent. And I think it sometimes helps, but a lot of times it it, it takes away from being a better person. I see things that I shouldn't probably see. Awesome. Well said. If your home caught fire and your spouse and your children and your pets are all safely in the front yard, you have an opportunity to run back into the house and grab one item that matters. What's the one item you grab? The one item I grab, my Bible. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who would you want to be seated right next to on a bench? I would really, and I know, I'm not, I know this is, uh, people will laugh at the cliche, I would love to sit next to Jesus and ask him because he is the center of three religions, differences, and I would love hmm. to ask him, could you please tell me what would unite these three? Because the way they view you divides these three major religions. That's so interesting. I've never thought about Jesus being the central character that actually divides three of the great religions. So, and in, in now switching spots with Jesus, and I know you may not be super comfortable doing this, but what do you think his response might be? He might actually tell me, does it matter? He may actually say, does it really matter what you think of me? You're supposed to do what I ask you to do. You're supposed to do as I have told you to, to love another, worship the Lord, and do good. Does it really matter what or who I am? And it may be a nice rhetorical question, but I don't think he'd answer me because I don't think he'd want to declare one or a winner over the other. But I think he'd make you think. So I, I wonder if he would answer that way. What's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I've ever received is always try to see the world through another person's eyes. You will get what you want and you will be a much better person if you can always have the perspective of being able to see the world through other people's eyes. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Yourself described cocky, know-it-all, bright, intelligent, focused kid. What would you tell your 20-year-old self, doctor? You're not as great a person as you think you are, and you're going to need a lot of help along the way. If you think that you can go through this world on your own accord because you're so great, you're going to have another thing coming. 
Well, another thing coming and shows up in all of our lives. It has shown up in yours, and yet you've bounced back, moved forward, written a beautiful work. And so the final question applies, I think, well here. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Redemption. (laughs) Uh, I've basically been like a phoenix rising, I think, from what I thought were poor circumstances, if not ashes. And although I have had to, you know, not overcome as much as my father did, I nevertheless had a point where everybody probably could have counted me out. And uh, I've actually think I've done fairly well trying to stay humble. Dr. Bassam, <laughs> how do you have stayed humble? You uh, are another living example of the phoenix in action. Uh, a bird that soars a little too high reduces itself to ashes and yet then from those ashes goes on to learn its lessons and soar even higher. I want to thank you for sharing part of your story with us. Thank you for sharing your people's story with us. Thank you for sharing your grandfather's story with us. And maybe most importantly today, thank you for sharing your dad's story with us. It's been a pleasure, John. Thank you for having me on. My friends, I hope you enjoyed that story. I'm going to encourage you right now to check out the worthy book. I have it earmarked uh, about 60 different times. It's a great book. It's called The Road to Nablus. It's written by my friend, Dr. Bassam Hadi. It is in bookstores now, and you want to check it out. So for this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live Inspired. Okay, guys, I know what you're thinking. John, we get it, man, we get it. Rate and review the podcast. But my friends, listen, it really does help other people find our show, which allows us to grow our Live Inspired community. Don't you want to help other people feel fired up about their lives just the way that you feel fired up about yours? So please go right now to Apple Podcast or anywhere that you listen and give us a five-star rating and then go ahead and share what you enjoy most about the Live Inspired podcast together. We can make a difference.